Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, which is page 40, if you're using one of the Bibles that's here for you. Good morning to you. Good morning down at Loma. It's good to have you here. I want to start the message with two songs, which I'm not going to sing. Uh, there's several reasons for that. But the, uh, the two songs I want to share with you, the first one is from the 70s. It was uh, a cover by the Doobie Brothers. The Doobie Brothers made it famous. And the name of the song is Jesus is Just All Right. You may remember. It's a great, great tune. <clears throat> it begins... A lot of doo-doos. But then you get to the lyrics, and this is what the lyric says. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. And then there's a few nuanced verses, essentially like this. I don't care what they may know. I don't care where they may go. I don't care what they may know. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. And then there's a bridge in the song. Jesus... It's hard to do it monotone, right? He's my friend. Jesus, he's my friend. He took me by the hand, led me far, far from this land. Jesus, he's my friend. Now that song has been, like I said, it's not original. It was originally a gospel band who wrote it. Uh, And it's been covered by groups, uh, secular and Christian. I think notable Christian groups. Uh, DC Talk did a cover of this, and a Larry and Bob from the VeggieTales. <laughs> so, just about everybody you can think of has covered on that song, and I like the song, uh, but I will say there is an uncomfortable familiarity with Jesus in the song that just has always been there for me. It's so casual. Now, part of that is linguistic. In the 70s, to say something's just all right was to say it's cool. Whereas now, that sounds like Jesus is just all right. Um, So that that is on on you know on me in my time to understand that. But still, it's it's always been a little bit hard to embrace. And I suppose uh, the reason um, I can enjoy it but not really embrace it. Uh, has to do with the fact that the other tracks on the Doobie Brothers album don't say a lot more about Jesus. It's kind of the only look I get about Jesus from them. I'd like to know more. Here's another one. Uh, This is from the 80s. It's another song that I love, uh, but I don't quite know what to do with it. It's by Depeche Mode. It's called Personal Jesus. Uh, Your own... Personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there, feeling alone when you're all alone, flesh and bone by the telephone, lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer, right? Take second best, put me to the test, just listen to the words. Things on your chest you need to confess. I will deliver. You know I'm a forgiver. Reach out and touch faith. Now to be clear, uh, Depeche Mode wasn't singing about Jesus. They were singing about friendship. Uh, They were impacted by uh, actually Priscilla Presley, Elvis' daughter's words about how someone had been like her own personal Jesus. 
And there was this, this notion. It doesn't make the song bad, right? And it's certainly, there's many themes in the song that touch on uh, who Jesus is. But I find it uh, incomplete. I find it incomplete in light of the entire album. Like I, I would love it if it were surrounded with other songs. Because Jesus is certainly personal, but he's more than personal, right? At least this morning, we're going to see such a different side of the Lord. And the question I want to ask you is, is your faith, is your faith or your knowledge or who Jesus is in your life, uh, for those of you who follow Christ, is it uncomfortably familiar? In other words, is it incomplete? Because there really isn't a, a huge difference between singing Jesus is just all right with me and ending up with Jesus is just all right. Right? And there's really not a huge difference between uh, being so strong about having your own personal Jesus that Jesus looks almost exactly like you want him to look. So uh, how complete is uh, our Messiah this morning? That's, that's what I, I want us to explore. And we're really, it's a 10-verse meditation. Really, we're going to be hanging out in five verses most of the morning here in, in Exodus chapter 3. But that's the question I, I want us to, to lead up front with. Is, is, is our definition, is the working image of the Messiah in our life, when we, when we talk about gospel, is, is that Christ everything he should be? Or is he uh, just all right? Let me read uh, Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. You may be wondering why we're reading about Jesus in Exodus. We're reading about Jesus in every book of the Bible. That's why. Here's 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, 
And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, I read through verse 10 because I I just wanted you to have a good connection on the basic message that's going to come from God in this scene. But I I want to, our focus this morning will probably be on, on the first five verses and so if you look, let's just walk slowly uh, because we're heading towards what I think is, feels to me as a paradox. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, a little background, Horeb is the same thing as Sinai. And it, it, the word name is used interchangeably. So Moses appears in the scriptures to have wandered with his sheep or his flocks farther west than normal. That's, I, I think, the sense of it all. Uh, wilderness and desert in the Hebrew are uh, very close ideas. And so when they're wandering in the wilderness, the notion that should always be in front of us is not a lush wilderness, but a a wilderness of scarcity. Okay, that's the idea of wilderness. They're in a place of scarcity, and so oftentimes shepherds would have to migrate their flocks over great distances to keep them fed. And somehow or another, Moses, in this occasion has strayed farther west than maybe normal, and he's arrived uh, in the region of Horeb, or the mountain of God. Now, the mountain of God, um, I don't want you to think, I don't think the inclination in Scripture is, is that Moses knew this was the mountain of God. He's writing to a familiar audience. So this is the narrator of the story, saying the mountain of God to, to the ears of the reader that would understand it, but I don't think we should think that Moses knew, oh, here's Horeb, the mountain of God. He's at the mountain, which in, throughout his lifetime becomes the mountain of God and becomes commonly known as the mountain of God. But right now, it's a hill or a mountain. That's all it is, called Horeb. And it says here in the second verse that, and the angel of the Lord appeared in a flame. And this is uh, mysterious. There's several things in this passage that are mysterious. And partly, by the way, my my, my spirit, my heart is not to solve the mystery. So I don't want to ruin it. Because a lot of people don't know. I don't think we can fully know. And I don't want to squash your wonderment um, with an answer that's not really correct. So on a few of these things, like what is the angel of the Lord... Um, I'm going to talk around it, but I'm going to try to be uh, take it in a light-handed way. Some people uh, think it's an angel. Okay, in the history and tradition of the church, there have been positions all over the place, from it's an angel to it's the Christ. Um, but this is what we this is what we can see. We see a few things. One, this angel has a holy presence which is unique if it's just an angel. Um, Gabriel didn't just do this to Mary or Joseph. You didn't find that. You didn't find that uh, necessarily all the time, even in some of the prophets. So there's a holy presence about this angel, which seems to elevate. The other thing is he speaks as God. Now, that's not totally uncommon with prophets or even angels because they are ambassadors with the message of the Lord and so they can adopt the language of the Lord. But this is a, um, almost to take on the person. Look at verse 4. 
when the Lord, that's the holy name for God, right? Just imagine when the Lord saw that he, speaking of Moses, turned aside. It's almost you imagine the Lord in heaven looking down, seeing Moses turn aside. When the Lord saw he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. And it's Elohim there. It's different. When the Lord up high saw, God called out of the bush. That's a, it's one of those places that makes you go, ooh. Is this, an, is this really an angel? Or is this the angel? Is this the Christ? The angel of the Lord shows up in Joshua 5. There's another time he shows up in near scripture. He meets Joshua right before Jericho and tells Joshua, you need to take off your sandals because the ground on which you stand is holy. So we find that similarity. One thing we can know about this, it's obviously speaking on behalf of the Lord. It, uh, the bush and whatever personhood the bush has desires to convey God. Okay? And we know this, that God is not contained, God is not a bush, nor can he be contained in anything so we should not walk out of this saying, oh, this is the enduring image of God. It's not the enduring image of God. They don't carve graven images of flaming bushes all over the place. This is a moment where God has condescended in some way to speak through a bush. Likewise, why the bush is burning and not consumed has occupied many people and is, I think, equally mysterious I think it would be wrong to try to uh, know that answer. This is, but this is what I think we can conclude. God is using the bush to talk to Moses. Moses is the recipient of this conversation. The bush is for Moses. In all the things that God could show, at times where the Lord's written on the walls, there's times when the Lord has appeared as a flame. There's times when the Lord has done many, many things. In this case, there's no one around but Moses. And it's my hunch, it's my hunch that God wants to appear in a way that Moses would find approachable. Because Moses is going to come back to this very same mountain in about a year and a half, and God will not even be able to fit himself in the mountain. The mountain will shake and it will smoke and the clouds will descend, and there will be earthquakes. It will be like the fact that God has come down to touch the tip of the peak of the mountain is almost such a cataclysmic event that even the people of Israel say, enough, this has to stop. Tell the Lord we'll do whatever he wants us to do. He just needs to leave. That is the Lord. Right? So we, somehow the Lord, I think, is, is showing up in Moses' life in a way that would allow Moses to talk. Not just sit there going, just go away or kill me or do something. And we see that. We see oftentimes when the more real the Lord shows up in people's lives, they say, woe is me, I am undone. And they lay down as though dead. <laughs> and so there's this, the Lord's coming to Moses in a way that... Uh, and we'll see this next Sunday, where, where Moses is going to feel free to talk, not just to talk to, but to talk back. Next week, Moses is going to be almost rebellious in his heart before the Lord. 
And I have to wonder if the Lord wanted to make sure that space was there. In verses three and four, we see uh, Moses sees the bush and he has this statement, I'll turn aside to go see this great sight. And I, I'm, I'm entertained by this. I'd love to spend more time here. This, he, here's, the big picture, here's the big picture on it. Is God, God posts himself on the mountain, which draws the attention of Moses, right? Then God speaks out of the mountain to draw him close. And uh, I, that relationship of God making himself seen so that we can respond and God responding in our response is consistent with this person. And I think his uh, narrative is theology. And this is one of those, we are observing the way God behaves. Now, you and I will likely never see a burning bush because we're, A, we're not Moses, but B, and more importantly, we are not in a place in time where God is doing something as signature as the exodus of his people from Egypt. It's not our, it's not our, it should not be our hearts to say, Lord, do cool stuff for us just because it's cool. The Lord's doing something that is, becomes the central piece of Hebrew life and a central fixture in the way we understand Christianity, and it's happening right now. That's why Moses gets to see a burning bush. And so I'm not saying the Lord appears to each person in this way, but I will say that this is consistent about the Lord, that I do believe the Lord makes himself known to people in such a way as to get from them a response. And when we respond, he responds. That is consistent with this person. And I'm saying this to say, if you are here saying, uh, you know, I just haven't met the Lord, I want, to, I want you to at least walk away with, maybe you haven't responded. Because we worship a God who shows himself and responds. That's why in Romans, right? It says, God has made himself known. His invisible attributes, his divine nature, has been clearly seen by all people so that all men are without excuse. God shows himself to all people. And we see it here. We see that the Lord has shown himself to Moses and the Lord has presented himself in such a way that allows the real Moses to engage, which is, which is what's going to happen. But here's, here's what we all want to spend our time on. Here's verses 4 and 5. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That to me... Moses, come here. Stop. This is what happened. God is in heaven, which is more than a gazillion miles away in whatever way you would want to measure it. God is distant in the celestial world and decides that he wants to bring a message of deliverance to his people. And he comes all of this distance, all the way down, and then he jams his identity 
into a bush. I mean, it's like climbing into a lead box. Climbs into a lead box. He sticks himself in the desert on a mountain where Moses just might see and turn aside. And when he does, he calls Moses close. And as soon as Moses comes close, he says, you cannot come closer. I mean, I think of all the distance. Think of all the distance that God has covered. I mean, of space and time and whatever the spiritual distance marker is. All that has been covered in order for the Lord to get here. And then when he finally does show up here and his child, Moses, responds to him, his first words after the call is, stop. Don't come any closer. In fact, you need to remove... Remember, the sandals are not a provision in order for him to come closer. They are, you are already standing on holy ground. Already your presence runs the risk of being an affront to my holy person. That's the intonation. When Moses takes off his sandals, the Lord doesn't say, okay, come on in now. Get on in here. He doesn't do that. You're too close. You're too close. This God who wants to rescue us makes it clear from the very moment, Moses, there is a distance between you and me that cannot be solved. There's something about you and me that is really different. We are not the same. It says when Moses heard this, right? He bows low, just, I'm before the Lord. Now, this is consistent, by the way. This gospel, the Old Testament, has the gospel that we, we love and cherish, but it has it with a distance. And it's so consistent in the Old Testament. Everywhere you go in the Old Testament, you find this. You find the Lord declaring that he will be among his people and I will be your God and you will be more people and I will lead you and I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. That's happening in the Old Testament. And he says, in fact, build a house for me, a tabernacle for me that will travel with you, right? The Lord wanted a traveling home. He didn't say, I'm gonna stay in the mountain of Horeb and you guys go and trust me, it'll be fine when you get there. He said, in fact, I'm gonna go with you. So build me a tabernacle. And they did not leave the mountain until they had the tabernacle. And throughout the day, the Lord would lead them through a, pill, a, a cloud or a pillar of fire. And then he would reside in the tabernacle among the people. And all the tribes of Israel would camp in an orderly way around the tabernacle so, at the for, so that the formation of God's people always said, God is in the center of us. He is amidst us. And yet no one could see him. And they could not go in the tabernacle. There's always a distance. When they went into battle, the Lord said, build for me an ark. Something that will travel with you, that will represent my indwelling and my glory. And so they build this ark. And then he says, cover the ark. You can never see it. Your average Hebrew never once in his entire life saw the ark of the covenant of God. It was always covered even when they would establish the tabernacle and put the ark in it, the way that they would uncover it is they would back up to it and grab the cover, lift the cover, and it would turn into the curtain so that it was never, ever seen 
except by one priest, one day, a year, and at great cost and care. So you have this Old Testament theme of the Lord being a rescuer. I have, do you see this? I have seen my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. I've come to deliver, and I'm going to bring them out. You can't ask for a better theology of what redemption is, of the God who sees and hears and knows and comes and takes. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it's right here in the Old Testament. There is this beautiful gospel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and it sits right alongside. Don't come any closer. So what do we do with that? Christians have a common response. Uh, And I'm not saying that you actually do this in your mind consciously. I think this is the unconscious, largely unconscious calculations of, of people who call this their book. They look at the Old Testament and they see this redeemer with a distance. There's always this distance, right? And then they see the New Testament and there's this Jesus who touches us, right? Mark 5, Jesus is walking around and a woman who's unclean, perpetually unclean because she's unwell. So she's sick and unclean. She can't stop bleeding and she reaches in the crowd and she touches Jesus. She touches Think of the difference in these accounts. She reaches through the crowd and she touches Jesus and Jesus stops. What? Who touched me? Which seemed like a preposterous question to his followers because they're in a crowd. And he says, no, I know. Power has left me. Who touched me? And there's the woman and he says to the woman, your faith has made you well. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say, how dare you touch me for the cloak which you touched is holy ground. He doesn't do that. He doesn't admonish her for her desire to draw close. He doesn't say, look, I'm going to go into town, but the reason I have 12 disciples is I want, they're like my secret service. I want them to build a circle around me so that whenever I'm in town, my holy ground is untarnished. That's not what Jesus does. And so we have two different pictures. We have this Old Testament picture of God as a bearded, angry, mountain shaker, warrior, strong deliverer. And we have Jesus, who's a lover, not a fighter. New Testament image. God, Jesus picks us up and dusts us off and takes our burdens, gives us a lot of grace. And if we're not careful, what I think we end up doing is saying there is an irreconcilable difference between these two people. They are different. And this is what happens. If we think they're different, then we respond in one of two ways. One, we actually choose which one of the two gods we want to worship as Lord. And I think a lot of people choose Jesus. That's what... They got this Old Testament God or I got Jesus. 
And they choose Jesus, and then they write songs like, Jesus is just all right with me and my own personal Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that song being written in the mountain? <laughs> yeah, be a much different lyric. But that's what we do, is we, 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 we feel like they are a difference in kind, of different essence, that they are unique and separate from one another, almost as though if they are related, it's of distant relation. Not God cannot possibly be the father of Jesus. He's maybe an uncle, a great uncle. But a unity of person. I mean, you, no. And we pick. And by and large, the church picks Jesus because they don't understand the Old Testament. And because nobody wants to be told, stop. So that's one response that we have is that we see this difference and we say, well, the difference is real. Another response I think the church has is, uh, in Christians is we see this difference and we respond with the difference isn't, is, is real, but it isn't that they're different people. It's that God has changed. That's the Old Testament God. That's back when apparently we think there was a primitive time where people liked that God and didn't want a personal God. There was a time when people really didn't want to get picked up and touched and loved on. Back in that day, that was their kind of God, as though people haven't always been hurting and longing for Jesus. But that's what we say, is that somehow God has evolved. And we look, right, and we have the whole body of the Old Testament. We go, well, see, the whole Old Testament's consistent with the Old Testament God. Well, who would say that and that and that and that and that? And so we say, well, what, is, what must have happened is that the idea of God has evolved as people have evolved and as culture has evolved. And so that now we have, now the Jesus we have is a more accurate Jesus or has, he's, he's finally kind of caught up with the times Jesus. Here's the challenge in all of that. The challenge in all of that is if the truth and the person of God is evolving, what can we possibly know about him? And I'll just I'll show you, in every occasion that we adopt, we begin to adopt this evolution of God's revelation to us, we end up saying things like, we end up discarding all of the things that we don't like about the faith. So the notion that there's going to be a judgment, which God does that belong to? I mean... It was the Exodus 3 God who gives the smackdown to Egypt. It must, be, it must be an old God idea, right? Disregard the fact that Revelation 19 puts Jesus on the horse, riding in. Despite the fact that it's Jesus sitting at the great white throne at judgment, despite the fact that one day Jesus out of his own mouth says, I come in glory, son of man comes in glory, and I will sit on my throne and I will divide mankind up like sheep and goats. But what ends up happening is, is if we have this evolving idea of who God is, we end up at these passages and we don't know what to do with them. Because we don't have, we don't have eight tracks in our album about it, Lord. We have personal Jesus 
Jesus is just all right with me. So what do we do then? I mean, obviously, I don't agree with either one of those. Hardly giving them the time of day. What do we do if we see a difference? If we see a difference, but we say, but the God is, God is not different, and he has not evolved. This is what we say what Christ said. It's not complete. It's not fulfilled. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. I and the Father are one, and I've come to fulfill the picture. The image in Exodus 3 is correct but incomplete. The image in Exodus 3 is correct in the sense of God wants you to know that he is holy. God wants you to know that he's a strong redeemer, a reliable redeemer who never forgets his promises. He wants you to know that. But we haven't read about Jesus yet. It's not yet complete. It's not that it has to evolve. He's just, it's, the story is not done. It's not finished. By the way, I think this can give us a heart of mercy for the Jew when Jesus came. Imagine, remember, Jesus came to Jews. The gospel came first to Jews. And it, it's, it's responsible for us to read and study the word with that in mind. What I mean to say is the Hebrew people grew up with a very, very strong view of who God was. God is great and holy. There is one God and one God alone, and he is jealous for the worship of all people. And he will not abide. Compromise. And he is the source of truth, and he's the path of mercy. That is strong Jewish faith. That's the faith that Jesus came to. Which you can appreciate if there's someone who believes, someone who is very strong, Exodus 3, this is the God I know and worship, or Exodus 20, or Deuteronomy 8, or 9, or any of them, right? If, if, if someone who has a strong embrace of the Old Testament God, you can imagine when they saw Jesus doing some of the things that he was doing, you can imagine even a good soul, a good-hearted man would go, ah, oh, what? How do I reconcile this? He just walks into houses with sinners. Even a good man would say that. This is the full counsel of the Lord, is the Lord is holy. When we just pick a New Testament Jesus, we lose the holiness of God. Flies out the window. It's gone in two seconds. The Lord is holy and righteous, and strong, and great, and able. And he sees, and he hears, and he knows all things, and he does all things. And his son is Jesus, who draws close. That's the full story. There's this this occasion, I'll end with this. The Gospel of John John chapter 13. Now, I don't think Jesus has Exodus 3 in mind in this scenario, but it's just so beautiful um, that I, I do think he grins when they're told alongside of one another. It's the Last Supper. And we can turn. We have, oh, if you turn quick. 
John 13, 1, I'll read it. And Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, right? it's not yet fulfilled. It's almost fulfilled, but it's not yet complete. He's almost in the hour. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that a great word? Whew. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, Peter has a view of God, right? And he knows. He's declared. He knows. So Peter sees this. He says, Lord, why do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, the ground. It's Peter saying, like, I can't draw close. And Jesus says this. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is, we have a much better gospel when we know that God is the holy God of the bush and that Jesus has bridged the distance for us. That's the gospel. It's so much more than that he forgives our sins. It's so much more than that. It's, it's the, the Lord. It, God has come all this way to earth, but there still is this difference and this, this notion that we are not clean. And Jesus says, I will, I will stand in the gap and wash my children so that they can come boldly before the throne of God with full confidence. That's what Jesus has done for us. It's not that that's a different God than Jesus. It's that Jesus, the Lord, saw this distance and said, and said it in his own person, it's not enough that I can bring them to my mountain. I must bring them to my bosom. That's what Christ has done for us. And when you pick, you take so much out of the story. It's my, my prayer and my hope that as you mature in your knowledge of the Lord, it would be in the whole counsel of the Lord. It would be in the Lord who approaches Moses in the desert and that very same God who washes our feet. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I want to speak this on our behalf before you. I know in this room there are people who get along with a different side of who you are. Lord, there are people here who uh, just worship best or they presume that they, they like the most the strong, powerful, holy God. And then there's others who embrace the merciful side of you, Lord. And I, I, ask, I ask that through your spirit, You give us all an understanding of your breadth and your height and your depth, your measure, Lord. Father, I pray that uh, against the sin of the church, which has so often in my history 
uh, deferred itself to the gentle side of the New Testament. Lord, there is one word, one revelation from you, and it is the scriptures. Lord, I pray in our hearts that we would begin to reflect your whole person. That we wouldn't be uh, one-dimensional Christians who ultimately say to the world, yeah, Jesus is just all right. Lord, and I lift up people uh, who may be here this morning who have not responded to you, Lord, who have, maybe they've even seen you and just haven't turned aside to respond. I ask, Lord, that you, you would put on their heart the weight of their response, that they need to turn to you. Father, that you lay on their shoulders the weight of Sunday after Sunday being beneath the teaching of your word and yet not feeling the need to respond, Lord. I, I ask that you, in the way that you know is best, come to them. Show them who you are. Lord, and I pray through your spirit you soften their hearts to receive you. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.